once again we can see how Deep Space Nine is continuing to try and find itself by trying to just hit pretty much as many hard issues or sci-fi issues uh, either that are unique to it or that they feel are worth talking about as hard as possible. We already had the trilogy with the Bajorans and their political and military and social realities of in the wake of... Well, in the wake of the removal of the occupation and just the mess that that is. Then we had an entire episode solely focused on the Trill and what it really meant to be Trill and how the Trill work. And now we have what is basically our first real Cardassian episode. It could be argued this is our first Cardassian episode ever. While they featured in TNG before, and they've of course been in DS9, this is the first time we start dissecting their politics, their government, and their culture, which I'll talk about all three of which as we go through this. I want to talk about one thing before we really start. Um, this is also the beginning of two characters' arcs that will continue through the vast majority of the series. Garak and Gul Dukat, also known as two of the most popular characters on this show. So, I mean, hey. Now, believe it or not, this is one of Garak's first real occurrences. In fact, I believe this is his second real appearance, total. And... I mention that because they had already jotted down the lines and concepts of what they were going to do with Garrick in the future. Like, this was the beginning of Garrick, the character. Now, what I say, when I say that, I don't want to spoil too much for those who haven't seen this show, and I'm trying to kind of keep that in a minimum, because I know several people are watching this show for the first time with me. All I'm going to say is it's interesting, considering they changed their mind about his character later, given what they already had established. But we do see Garrick as full-on Garrick. And I want to talk about that briefly because there's a point where he admits to Cisco that, oh, yes, I wanted to discuss this thing with, with Gul Dukat. Why? Well, because I suspect something. Why? Well, because Garrick told me. He told you? Well, no, actually, he didn't. But he inferred. That's not how he phrases it, but that's what he means. That's how Garak operates. He doesn't do things directly, either because of a personal life choice or because of just so many years of practice. He doesn't just say, hey, this is a thing. He will instead mention something near it or adjacent to it or ask, do you know anything like such and such around here? Designed in a way to draw your attention to the thing he actually wants you to pay attention to. I'll be talking more about this later when it becomes much more apparent the way Garak operates. But it's interesting to me because Garrick is the kind of person, and I don't mean this as a brag, that would be an open book to me. Because the way I tend to analyze people, in person especially, is by looking at what they're saying and how they're saying it. I admittedly have a bit of a problem of tending to ignore what they're saying. That, that's, that's, that's admittedly a flaw of mine, I'll admit that. But with someone like Garrick, it'd be like, oh, okay, you know. <clears throat> So, hmm. let's just go through the episode, then we'll talk about our two major points towards the end. Um, so, Garrick immediately notices the Cardassian sun going on board the station. That's not really a big deal, per se. I only bring it up because, and this is probably me reading too much into it, I like to think that Garrick is observant. As in, when he's out and about... He is constantly paying attention to what's going on around him. You know, basically the complete opposite of what most normal people do. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's completely understandable. Most normal people, when they're out getting lunch at a tap calf or whatever, they just sit down and they're like, 
uh, and, and the world goes away. They, they have their meal and they've got their book or nothing or music or their phone or their 3DS or whatever, and the world isn't there. Garrick is the exact opposite of that. He is paying attention to everything around him, you know, constantly. So it makes sense to me that he would immediately just eyes snap over to the Cardassian child because in addition to the fact that he's paying attention, that is a very unusual sight to catch. Then he lays his hand on the boy's shoulder. Now, that one was a bit much. I gotta admit that even if there wasn't some other problems with this, I mean, that's not the thing you do. Right? You don't just walk up to another another kid and be like, Hey, what's up, kiddo? I know, I know. I'm, I'm a little bit biased because I've become paranoid because the real world is horrible. But it's worth noting that the kid biting him was still a hell of an overreaction and says a lot about the situation, which we'll get to more later. What I like, there's this really brief scene. Poor Odo has almost no presentation in this episode. But what I really like is the bit where... You know, he comes and says, yeah, sorry, Garak was just bitten by a Cardassian. What? We don't have any Cardassian... I didn't think we had any Cardassian children on the station. And Odo immediately says, in this kind of grousing tone, we don't. And then he stomps off. Because he's going to go look into it, because he's Odo. <laughs> in fact, if it wasn't for Gar the Garak and Bashir focus on this episode, I imagine Odo would be the one who would actually have puzzled his way through this. Lord knows he's good at it. That being said, can I just take a quick segue here and say that I do like that this was a Bashir-centric episode. Bashir and Garak, the two have great chemistry together, and the two bounce off of each other nicely. Especially considering... Mm, <clears throat> um, moving on. So, one of the things I uh, want to add, though, here, is that... <sighs> Never mind. So then, Kira has a line where she says, Man, we just had no choice but to take them in. I want you to think about the phrasing and the tone behind it. Again, this might be me reading too much into it, but given the later parts of the episode, I don't think it's, it is, because there's almost, there's not uh, quite resentment. It's more like resignation. We had no choice to take in those filthy, disgusting Cardassian children. Like, she doesn't quite say it that way, but it's it's definitely leaning in that direction. I'm going to segue here a moment to talk about the... Well, no, let's, let's do this in order. Let's do this in order. So, we have a scene where the old Bajoran man is basically like, I hate Cardassians. It's funny that he destroys his own argument in the way he presents it. Let me lay this out for you. His argument is that Cardassians are evil because they're Cardassians, and that is his argument. But his son is not evil because some Cardassians are okay. I mean, <laughs> you could probably see the flaws in that argument immediately. That is also a very interesting topic I'll talk about in a moment here. But... I do want to say I really like how fatherly Cisco comes across in this episode. It's something that Avery Brooks is really good at. The way he interacts with Thrugan is, is pretty much pure gold in every scene he's in. Um, I also <laughs> have to comment on the line that Bajoran Dad, I don't remember his name, uh, comments, it's like, okay, it's okay. They won't hurt you. They're not Cardassians. Because as you know, son, the only people that can hurt you are Cardassians. Now, I'm being facetious on purpose. Let me make this clear. I understand victimized bias. I do. No, really. 
it is something I struggle with because intellectually I understand that the organization I am biased against is not as horrible as I feel it is, if that makes any sense. So I do get it on a very personal, you know, first-person perspective. But at the same time, I have to mock it because it is completely illogical. It is actually wrong to point to a group and say, all of you are identical, except in extremely specific circumstances. Like, even the Borg don't even qualify as that, for God's sakes, at least thanks to the Queen and Hugh and a couple others we'll get to later. Now, I want to talk here about Mark Alemo, because there's this actually really good scene. In fact, Ducat is great in every scene he's in the scene. By the way, this is basically Ducat's, like, third, I think, episode, or third or fourth. He hasn't really had a lot of presence in the show, is what I'm trying to say. In fact, I believe, for the most part, he's just been on camera, This not camera, but you know, on the view screen. I think this is the first time, or excuse me, the second time we've actually seen him in person in the whole show. So he does a great job, an absolute praise to him. It's no wonder Dukat would become such a regular feature of the show. But there was a miscommunication somewhere along the line. And this is the beginning of the Dukat, uh, let's call it the Enigma. Now let's make this clear. Ducat is not a good person. I have never, of all the years I have heard Ducat debated and argued across fiction, and I have heard many, many discussions about Ducat, I have never heard anyone try to argue that he wasn't at least, you know, I've never tried to hear someone argue that he was a good person. But the fine shadings and details of his character are so multifaceted and have so much depth to them, and we get so much character time with him at multiple points in his life, in reacting to multiple different types of situations and people, that what we have is this incredibly multifaceted, and I'm just going to say it this way, jewel. Mark Alemo is awesome, and a very charismatic actor, and he manages to throw, just completely throw all of that energy and power into his performance, and combined with smart and tight screenwriting, what we have is this amazing character. But we weren't supposed to. See, here's the thing. I cannot say what I'm about to say with 100% certainty. However, I am 100% convinced that this is the truth because of things I've talked about in the past and will talk about in the future in this, very, in this series of ruminations, probably in about a year or so. Ducat was always intended to be the bad guy. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, yeah, he is the bad guy. No, he's not. The bad guy, when you're looking at it narratively speaking, is someone who is unambiguous, who is not multifaceted, who is not multidimensional. They're the bad guy, right? Someone who is intended to be, who is written and designed to be the bad guy, is not someone you debate. It's not someone who has sympathetic qualities. It's not someone who has different layers or shadings to them or reacts differently based on different stimuli. No, the bad guy is the bad guy. And that was the intent from day one. And in this episode, too, and yet, I, God, I hope some of you are watching this with me so you can see what I'm talking about, because he's not the bad guy in this episode. But it's because of a miscommunication. See, what happened is the, the episode was written as if Ducat was a despicable monster willing to utilize the plights of children 
and hiding behind a shield of and veneer of caring in order to mildly discourage one of his political rivals. Something so petty. Now, in the episode as presented, it's very likely that this was something that was intended. But the really interesting thing is, it's debatable if Ducat was behind it or another victim of it. Because Mark Alemo and the director involved both, both portrayed Ducat as someone who was sincere. And pay attention to his performance. You'll see what I'm talking about. We've seen Mark Alemo portray someone who is clearly lying. And we'll see it in the future. He has this particular tone when he's basically saying, I don't expect anyone to believe me on this, but here's the lie I'm expected to give. You know, he has that kind of, I expect you to understand what I'm saying. And he kind of does that eh, thing at the end of a sentence. I bet most of you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't do that in this episode. He plays it straight. Because the actor was playing it straight. And so now we suddenly have the possibility that Descartes was actually set up on this by a third party. Set in order, excuse me. <laughs> that he was not actually the, the per direct person involved in this. That instead, he's so pissed off because he's pissed off. That he legitimately believes in family and that he's legitimately angry at this situation. And finding out about this has just made him more furious. Now... Obviously, that was not the intent of the writers, but you can see how now we have that disconnect. And this disconnect will grow over time and create the Ducat enigma. Because actors, writers, and directors all kind of had different perspectives on what Ducat was, and so we get different perspectives on what Ducat is. Let me just say that this is one of those great coincidences of fiction. It doesn't happen often. And it, every time it does, it's wonderful in this specific manner because what we get is basically better than what was intended, my opinion. Because I honestly think Ducat as the bad guy would be doing a huge disservice to the actor, to the, to the viewers, and to the show in general. I like the multifaceted Ducat, and I love debating him. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts in this particular episode. Based on the performance, based on the evidence, based on the presentation, was he the one behind this? Was he the one behind this and yet was honestly upset about the orphan situation? Was he victimized by this? Was he victimized by his government? There's a line he gives about midway through the episode where uh, Bashir tells him, you know, weren't you the one in charge of the evacuation? And Dukat basically bites back his words. Like, you can almost feel the venom coming out there as, as fangs are unfurled, right? Because he flat out says, I was ordered to abandon this post by the civilian government, an order I didn't agree with. And he just grates that out there. I don't hear a lie there. But I do hear a lot of frustration whether it's frustration because he knows he's being maneuvered or whether it's frustration because he really was actually upset about leaving behind family. I'll talk about that in a minute, too. Who knows? Food for thought. Uh, God, let's talk about racism. God, why not? I don't like using that word, actually, because I really feel that word is a little bit overused and, and misused in society. Um, I prefer the word bias because I feel it's a little more accurate. Because bias can be positive or negative, 
and inclined towards more shadings than specifically racism. When you hear the term racist, what you usually think of, well, okay, what most people I know think of, including myself, is someone who's like, rah, death to the insert category here of people because I'm an idiot, right? No, I'm talking about bias. I admitted one of my own biases earlier, though I didn't admit it who towards. Um, and, of course, we all have biases to some extent or another. That's an unavoidable fact of human condition. But it's not often we see the kind of bias in fiction, at least back in the day. I, maybe this is more common nowadays. But it's not often that I see in fiction the kind of bias O'Brien has against the Cardassians presented. See, Keiko has no bias against the Cardassians. They're just another people to her. So she sees this as inalienable. Or that's the wrong word. She sees this as alien. Sorry, I don't know where that came from. Um... O'Brien automatically is like, why would you let them play together? Why would you let our daughter play with the Cardassian kid? Well, everything was fine. I was with them. But he bit someone's hand. I mean, the, the Cardis have had violence bred into them. It's kind of a normal thing. And he says it so casually. And that's what I wanted to bring your attention to. It's usually when fiction portrays this kind of racist biased or species bias. It is, you know, in a negative connotation, it's something overt and, frankly, kind of hard to believe. Like, it's someone who's like, man, all Cardis deserve to die. They're all scum. Ah, spit on everyone. I don't know what this accent is. I'm sorry, I'm not going into with this accent. You know, all Cardis deserve to die. They're all terrible and scum, and I hate them all. And they're all filth, and they're all beneath me, and blah, blah, blah. And it, they just go over the top with it. You know what I mean, right? There's no subtlety of the performance, and it's, it's a deliberate, knowing, willful bias, if that makes any sense. What O'Brien is showing is a much more natural, realistic, believable... I hesitate to use the word subtle, but I guess that is the word I'm looking for, a subtle bias. It's not like O'Brien consciously thinks all Cardassians must die. It's not like O'Brien automatically thinks all Cardassians are inferior but he has that inclination. It's just kind of natural to him because it is natural to him. Now, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying it's astonishing that we're seeing this kind of racial, excuse me, specious prejudice being presented in a Star Trek show. Do you remember the last time? Well, okay, maybe not the last time, but the last time I remember Star Trek trying to tackle specious prejudice like this, it was with a guy who was black on one side and white on the other, and a guy who was black on one side and white on the other. And yes, I said it that way on purpose. So if those of you listening to the MP3s, you probably know the episode I'm talking about, so you get the point, right? For those of you seeing me, you can see the gestures I just made. This is a lot more subtle and a lot more human and a lot more real, and that makes it so much more powerful, in my opinion. And it is thus a wonderful irony that the thing that allows Rugen and O'Brien to bond is their joint bias against Cardassians. The scene, it's, it's, it's a, such an obvious thing, but it, it clicks so well when he's just, he tries the Cardassian food, and he just is like, nope, nope, and he pushes it away, and then the two glasses clink. And they just look at each other. And then you'll notice, in, in, in the next scene and from then on, O'Brien just opens up a lot to this kid. It's like, oh, okay, we got something in common now. Funny how that works. I also find it interesting that O'Brien was at least willing to try the Cardassian food. The kid was not. So then they have their scene together. It is just gold. I don't have much else to add to that. 
but O'Brien's line about, you know, I've, it kind of demonstrates the insidiousness of such natural, non-willful bias, right? That perspective of the intellectual, the mind of O'Brien can say that all Cardassians are not bad. But you saw his earlier commentary and his inclinations towards them haven't really changed. It's only when his mind takes over and usurps those that says, all right, I've met some Cardassians I like, and I've met some Cardassians that I didn't. And this isn't even the first time this is brought up. This is actually part of uh, The Wounded, I want to say, back in TNG, when the Cardassians were really kind of introduced to the franchise. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. I, I, I'm sorry I don't have much else to say, but it's really a very human and natural look at it. And the best part is it's not resolved for either of them. O'Brien does not overcome his anti-Cardi bias, and neither does Rugal. And that's awesome. Because I know this is television and all, but it's not a goddamn cartoon. I mean, no offense to cartoons. There have been plenty of good cartoons. But you get my point, right? There's no pad ending here. There's no, oh, I have been shown the error of my ways. Boop. And now I have, I have fixed that part of myself. No. They still have those biases. It's still going to take them time and effort to try and work through that, if they bother at all. I like that. So then there's a scene where apparently Bashir either doesn't lock his door or Garrick picks the lock. Take your pick. I'm not sure which is more preferable. Um... And then there's a bunch of really good scenes between uh, Bashir and Sisko, Sisko and D Goldicott, and then them going down to the orphanage. It's all good stuff. I really don't have much else to add to it. It's all good stuff. You know, the looks they give each other, the, the, <laughs> the fact that Garrick can't help himself but to needle the orphanage worker, the, 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 um, the volunteer worker. He can't help it. He's just like, ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll go and fix your computer for you. Da, 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 da. Okay, it's fixed. We're good. <clears throat> Bashir's like, uh-huh. And then they find their evidence, and they're all. Uh, there's like this excitement in Garrick's voice because, I mean, I don't think this is any kind of a spoiler. Garrick hates Golducott. It's really obvious even in this episode. It is established as something that will lead to part of his character arc in the future. So he's obviously just, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to nail Dukat with it. It's going to be fantastic. And then he looks up and he sees some Cardassian children come out and say, are you here to take us back to Cardassia? And that moment is so powerful. Look at Garrick's face when she says that. All of that excitement, gone. All of the energy, all of the positivity, annihilated. What you see is a man who is confronted with something he finds to be abhorrent and is shocked at his own inability to do anything about it. That moment hits him hard. And it hits us hard as a consequence because the entire episode up to that moment has slanted things so that we will assume Cardassian children are regularly being adopted. After all, someone adopted Rugal, right? In that scene, we suddenly see multiple Cardassian children who are hesitant and afraid and obviously self-apparently ostracized by the Bajoran kids. And then, <laughs> and then that question, are you here to take us back to Cardassia? And suddenly that term war orphans gets a lot more powerful. In this, we once again, for the second time in this franchise, or excuse me, in the second time in this in the series, in DS9, 
see the true crimes of the Cardassian Union. Because, as I mentioned before, I don't think Dukat was fully in on it. That's my perspective. I think this was something that was set up to smear him and the, the, the civilian leader pretty much at the same time. And I think this is the kind of thing... <sighs> the reason I mention that is because, in my opinion, what we are seeing is just how much the Union and its actions have destroyed its own people. We have the children who are abandoned and effectively alone, and God knows what's going to happen to them. You remember uh, just two episodes ago, the news that Cardassians were unknowingly, or I should say, the news that the Bajoran, the Circle, was unknowingly receiving Cardassian shipments destroyed the Circle's power base. Not because they were right or wrong, not because they, people agreed with their politics or their identity or whatever, just the inference of Cardassian influence. Again, unknowing was enough to destroy entire, an entire political movement that was succeeding at a coup. I point that out to re-emphasize the hatred, and I'm going to use that word very specifically. I don't like overusing or misusing that word. The hatred the Bajorans as a populace have towards the Cardassians. And I find that hatred to be sad, because it is not the Cardassians that should be hated here. It is the Cardassian Union, and all that it has done to destroy its people and the Bajoran people, leaving those kids behind who may or may not ever be adopted, who may or may not ever end up going home to ensure that people like Rugen are literally nothing more than pawns in either Dukat's game or the government's game or the Obsidian Order's game or whoever's actually behind it. There's no denying he was just another pawn. And to leave people like Garak, who have no power or influence, who want nothing more than to help their own people and can't. This is actually an extremely dark episode when you sit back and think about it. But if I might diverge for a second, this is the kind of dark that I really like in my fiction. This is a dark that isn't about shock value. It's not about going into certain things that are really, really gross or really, really horrible. It doesn't need to have mass violence or, or God knows what else going on. Stuff I don't even want to talk about. It doesn't need to put into that. It is simply a dark story. And I like that. So Bashir demands a straight answer from Garak, and then Garak doesn't give him one, which I find hysterical. But then Garak says a line that I love, because I've actually, I've never phrased it this way myself, but I've actually thought this way in my real life many times. I believe in coincidences. Coincidences happen every day, but I don't trust coincidences. I really like that line. So then we have, uh, what's his name? I wrote down his name. Katan, the politician guy. He shows up, and we enter the final act of the episode. I don't have actually much to say about that. Katan's interactions, good actor. Good guest stars all across the board, by the way, in this episode. Um, they bring Katan in, and he's... <sighs> he does it perfectly, because he's frustrated, and he's angry, and he's upset, and he's... <laughs> and then he breaks for just one second. Huge props to the actor and the director, by the way. Because he's, he sits down and he says, Yeah, no, he probably doesn't even remember his, my face. He, does he? And I, I, I'm not even doing it right. I wonder how many times I had to practice that line. Because the way he says, does he? You can almost hear his voice tremble. 
Like it's the first time there's a, a break in the mask and you could just see the real father under there being like, does my son recognize my face? And his expression and his, his expression when he sees his son. And it's, it's a continuing morphing. It's not like he sees him and he goes, oh, he sees him and it's like, oh, oh, but it's my son. But wait, no, is that him? That is him. I recognize him. Oh, my God. But he, he doesn't recognize me. What should I do? Should I go for Okay, I'm going to try to. And you can just see all this playing out of his face. He doesn't say a word. Not until he starts trying to interact with them. And then, and then he starts to build himself up. His excitement builds up. And he's like, oh, look, look, yeah, yes, and this. And God, you probably don't. I, th I thought we were behind. And, and the, the, do you want to see some pictures of you as a child? Then the kid gives the party line. And I say it that way because that's exactly what it is. The kid practically says word for word the anti-Cardassian line of the Bajorans. And you can just see how much it hurts Catan, of course. It's probably the one bit about this entire affair that I find unbelievable, because it really does feel like the kid's reading from a script. And I don't just mean out of character. I mean in character. Like, when I first saw this, my first reaction was, oh, so the kid's a plant. Like, the kid's been briefed on what to say here, right? Um, <clears throat> and then they, they demand arbitration. I like how Catan accepts Cisco, not because he's Starfleet or competent or anything else, but because he's a dad. That really appeals to me. Then they have the whole, you know, the revelation scene and they dissect what's going on and they figure out that Dukat was behind it or, or the government was behind it or who the hell knows was behind it, as I presented earlier. Good stuff. I don't have actually much to add to it. It was all just a good scene. But I do want to talk about one last thing. Uh, first of all, it's interesting to me that Catan, in the end, basically says, yeah, I'll totally help those other orphans. No, I won't. Which, again, is just messed up and gets back to that whole dark thing I mentioned earlier. But the other thing I want to talk about... Well, actually, if I could just sit on that for a moment. This is yet another product of the Cardassian Union. What we have here is a man who has power. He is an influential member of the Datapa government, or what the hell they actually call themselves right now. They changed their names a few times in the show, so forgive me for not remembering. Um, he is a man of influence and power. He is the person that Garrick is not. Garrick clearly and demonstrably wants to help those kids and can't. This guy can help them, and has no interest in doing so. And, uh, I don't know what else to add to that. I do have one final thing to discuss, and that is the Cardassians as a culture. Now, obviously, we will learn more about the Cardassian people over time as this show continues to develop. One of the strengths of Deep Space Nine is they keep having the same species recur over and over, so a lot of them have more cultural diversement and general presentation and depth to them than races of hats, like so often happens in Star Trek. So again, this is our first real peek into the insight of the Cardassian people. And I think it is probably the most important and powerful insight we ever need, because they are a clan. Let me explain what I mean by that really quick. They have a completely tribal mentality. Family is everything to a Cardassian. Four generations of Cardassians sitting at the same table. Thing is, that kind of culture, that kind of society, is one that is tied by blood. And I don't mean shedding of it, I mean birth. I mean it is a complete, you are within your family unit perspective. Thus, anything outside the family unit is considered automatically hostile or an opponent. This, in my opinion, explains everything about how the Cardassian Union was formed and how the various powers within the Cardassian people operate. Again, we have at least three right now. 
the military, the, the, uh, the civilian government, and the Obsidian Order. All of them are against each other, and the group as a whole is against everyone else because they're outside the family unit. They are not family. When all you... I've actually talked about this recently, uh, uh, just, let's, just last week, about selfishness. I talked about this with regards to when what I care about is me, what I do is acceptable as long as it services me, right? I mean, that's a horrible perspective, and it's kind of evil, but you get my point. You know, if, if that is the mentality, I don't want to hurt you, but if hurting you benefits me, then I'll do it. That kind of mentality. That's the Cardassians right there. Except instead of me, it is us. Blood. Family. Whatever is outside this family is fair game as long as it benefits the family. Anything outside the family is automatically considered an enemy. You can see why I call this clan, or indeed tribal mentality. It is very stark. I would almost call it barbaric, but I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as a literal anti-civilization mindset. Because... That breaks everything down to very basic levels, very barbaric levels, in other words. I'm probably misusing that word. I'm going to strike that from the record. There we go. Very basic instead of barbaric. Very basic levels. At that point, all that matters is, are we blood? Yes, no. And are you not blood? Yes, no. And everything else can be stemmed from that very, very basic equation. It'll be interesting to see how that develops as we continue to discuss the Cardassian people and their culture and start to see some more shadings to that, which we will. But for now, I leave you for next time. <laughs>